I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. All right, let's bring it on, prosecutors. Fonnie Willis has at least eight cooperating witnesses in, a, in her criminal probe into Trump in Georgia. And two and a half years after Trump summoned his armies to stand back and stand by, the verdict is in guilty of seditious conspiracy. A jury found four members of the Proud Boys guilty on sedition charges this week, and all five Proud Boys guilty on multiple counts relating to January 6th. That includes Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the group who was not actually present at the Capitol, very significant. This follows earlier guilty verdicts in the trials of Trump's other militia mob, the Oath Keepers, bringing the DOJ's scorecard up to a whopping 14 convictions for seditious conspiracy. But most importantly, the legal groundwork for charging these traitors has been laid. Prosecuting the worst crimes against democracy is not only possible, it's not only necessary, it is successful. We're late to the party to save our republic, but better late than never, the conspirator in chief must be up next. And thank God, all signs are pointing in that direction. And not just as they, re as they relate to January 6th. Jack Smith's subpoenas are flying like classified documents out of boxes at Mar-a-Lago. This week, we learned that Smith is getting to the bottom of missing surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago with subpoenas issued to the software company who handles cameras for the Trump org. And the Trump org itself is the subject of more Smith subpoenas over the Saudi golf tournament that ever so conveniently landed at Trump properties. Why am I thinking of Jared Kushner and a little post-presidency investment of $2 billion? Put it this way. If there's a foreign quid pro quo behind Trump's illegal possession of classified documents and obstruction of justice, Jack Smith is going to find it. And if Trump has a word to muster in his own defense, the first-rate judge in the E. Jean Carroll trial is going to find that, too. In a brilliant move, Judge Lewis Kaplan gave Trump until Sunday night to decide to testify after the babbling predator told reporters in Ireland that he had to leave his golf course early to answer Carol's claims back in New York. Of course, it was all bluster. Both sides had rested their case on Thursday after Carol's team played the Access Hollywood tape and put two other women who were violated by Trump on the stand. Trump didn't even put on a defense. His lawyer, Joe Dacapino, was explicit that Trump wouldn't call a single witness, including himself. But after hearing of Trump's comment, Judge Kaplan took the highly unusual step of giving him one last chance to put up or shut up. Who else is going to be shocked when nothing changes on Sunday night? Maybe the GOP could be shocked that a defenseless, treasonous predator is the leading candidate for their presidential nomination. I'm not holding my breath but I am grateful for my own sanity on all this, if not before, now, for taking on and defeating Donald Trump and, in court and knowing that it is absolutely obscene that he is a free man running for president again, and for knowing how obscene it is that Clarence Thomas is still a Supreme Court justice. The man needs to resign. Adding to more revelations about Thomas's lavish patronage by billionaire Harlan Crow. Just last night, we learned that back in 2012, none other than Kellyanne Conway was helping judicial activists funnel tens of thousands of dollars to Ginny Thomas. Justice Thomas didn't recuse from a seminal case backed by those activists. And in that 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court peeled back decades of protection under the Voting Rights Act. This is absolutely scandalous. Now, before I had the mental clarity that I do now, I worked with Kellyanne Conway on the Trump campaign. And today I'm bringing you receipts to give you an up close and personal window into what I know about the attitude behind this corruption. You're not going to want to miss this. And many of these political power brokers wouldn't get away with their crimes and corruption if it weren't for the false label of Christianity. It gives them enormous cover to many Americans of faith. Believe me, I know. And last but not least, I want to shine a light on someone who's pulling back that cover and calling out the hypocrisy of Christians in name only. If you're a believer or not, this will strike a chord with you. I promise. <laughs> well, happy Cinco de Mayo, Ben Maizelas, ¿cómo estás? 
Bien, bien. It's great to be here, <laughs> Jessica Denson. And look, when we talk about all of these cases um, that Trump is embroiled in because of his criminal conduct, I never want our lights on luminaries to forget that you've actually litigated against Donald Trump and prevailed. You have the blueprint and it was not some insignificant case. The case over Donald Trump enforcing one of his most prized possessions, his NDAs, you managed to defeat. And Donald Trump threw every one of his tricks, his armies of lawyers at you and you managed to prevail. And so I want all of our luminaries to make sure they have that context in mind as you talk about the various cases um, and litigation chicane that he is involved in. And look, I never thought that Donald Trump was actually going to show up uh, for the federal trial, uh, the E. Jean Carroll case in Manhattan. But I never really thought what Donald Trump's plan was going to be the depths of his cowardice. I, I should have known, but the depths of his cowardice each time just manages to just like go, oh, you're you're that big of a coward. I mean, just think about this. He came up with a bogus reason why he had to be in Scotland and Ireland. He literally fled the country during the trial where he's accused of heinous, heinous conduct. And then at the very last minute, he tried to pull the trick. It's like the third grade juvenile kind of petulant fascist third grader, no offense to them, trick. He goes, and the last day he's like, oh, now I got to return. After evidence was all put on, as his side was resting their case, Donald Trump goes, I got to return right now because I have to confront E. Jean Carroll. I got to show up knowing that the case was basically over. And what was his plan? He was going to basically say, I came back. I flew back and judge. I'm the victim. You treated me so unfairly. I was going to testify. I was in Ireland doing all of this big business person stuff. And then I had to then I showed up and now the case is over. What? I'm being treated so unfairly. And even though his lawyer, Joe Takapina, was saying to the judge, look, you know what I'm dealing with here, Judge. He's not showing up. We're resting. He's not testifying. He's waived his right to testify. Judge Lewis Kaplan, the federal judge presiding over the case, so smart, knew exactly what Trump Brilliant. was doing and said, you know what? We'll give him until Sunday to show up. Yep. Contact me by 5 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday. Let me know if Trump's ready to go. Um, and if he doesn't want to testify, fine. But I'll give him a few more days to make that decision. Totally calling his bluff. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I love that so much. And right on right on the heels of that, we have Fonnie Willis learning out of Georgia that she has at least eight cooperating uh, witnesses in eight of these fake electors. Can you bring us up to speed on what's going on down in Georgia, Ben? Yeah, you know, I, I always want to be, you know, as accurate as possible um, with the luminaries, even when the headline that there's eight cooperating fake electors um, would be a great headline to really lean into. And that is one of the things you can glean from the filing that was just made, but that's not really what the filing said. So let me just, for the sake of accuracy, let all our luminary know, luminaries know what happened. So Bonnie Willis, the district uh, attorney of Fulton County, filed this motion to disqualify a lawyer um, who represents 10 of the fake electors, basically saying there's a conflict of interest between the various fake electors that she represents, that they're pointing fingers at each other, and that they previously turned down immunity deals. Um, and that's and that uh, rather um, the, the, the lawyer didn't convey the immunity deals to those clients and they didn't even have an op opportunity to even know about the deals that their lawyer essentially turned down for them without the deals even being presented. But this is now a filing from that lawyer who basically says that's not the case. Eight of the people I represent have actually taken the immunity deals and they've testified, you know, one of the sources saying that they testify that they still believe they committed no crimes um, and they claim that they're not necessarily even pointing the finger 
at other people, um, but they just received immunity kind of nonetheless. Ultimately, what Fawnie Willis is trying to establish here is the RICO or racketeering claims all the way up to Donald Trump, that there was a common plan and scheme amongst these fake electors, um, among some of the other schemes that Donald Trump was engaged in, where these fake electors put their names on electoral certifications saying that Donald Trump won Georgia when Donald Trump lost the state of Georgia. Um, and what the fake electors are saying is, no, this was just a backup plan if Trump prevailed uh, on his various lawsuits. The issue is, is that Trump lost all of those lawsuits, yet they kept their names affixed to the fraudulent electoral certificates through the January 6th insurrection, hoping that the insurrection was going to be successful. If their defense was that they were just a backup plan when Donald Trump uh, lost the cases, they should have revoked their names immediately. Um, but to me, this headline that's being reported that there are eight cooperating people seems to be a little hyperbolic in what the filing is, because this is really a filing of that lawyer calling out Fawny Willis, saying your motion was inaccurate trying to disqualify me, the lawyer, because we already have eight of the individuals who took immunity deals. So it's kind of a he said, she said, she said, she said kind of situation. Um, but as we learn more information, of course, we'll report. But um, it still is a significant development that you would have eight fake electors getting immunity deals who are testifying. They may not think what they did is criminal, but, you know, the MAGA Republicans look at the insurrection and start singing songs with the insurrectionists. So I'm not sure their legal, yeah. ethical and, and they, moral <laughs> compass is directly pointing in the right direction here. Yeah, they frame it as courage in defense of the Constitution. So. That's their perspective. But here's what's not hyperbolic is these convictions of the Proud Boys. Uh, four leaders of the Proud Boys were convicted of seditious conspiracy yesterday by a jury. That brings it up to, like I said, 14 convictions of that offense in the DOJ's J6 cases. Ten have been by juries, four by guilty pleas. Extremely, extremely significant, like I said in the open, especially, I think, for Enrique Tarrio, because he was not actually physically present at the Capitol on January 6th. And of course, our number one treasoner in chief, Donald Trump, was not present. But he, we know he was the ringleader and the reason that any of this existed, that any of these attempts to overthrow our democracy happened on January 6th. So I really see this as a as a um, legal um, laying the legal groundwork for the charges to be brought against Donald Trump. I have been impatient with probably many of our luminaries um, over the past two years that charges have not been brought sooner. But I think it is hard to look at this trajectory and not see that charges are coming and not be grateful for this groundwork being laid through these previous convictions of the, the, the actors lower down on the totem pole leading up to a possible prosecution, um, a needed, let's not even say possible, possible, let's just say impending prosecution of Donald Trump. Can we play that, that brief clip from Merrick Garland yesterday? And now, after three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, specifically conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. Our work will continue. So what do you think, Ben? I, I want to hear your opinion on where we stand with Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and what this what this conviction of these Proud Boys means. Well, think about what the defense was of the Proud Boys and the various Oath Keeper trials. What was their main defense? It was Donald Trump Donald told us Trump to sent me here. <laughs> we were following the orders of Donald Trump and the Department of Justice is now prosecuting us instead of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump should be the real criminal defendant here. That was most of the closing arguments that we heard in all of these Oath Keeper seditious conspiracy case. That was the direct closing argument made by the lawyer for Enrique Tarrio in this most recent Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case. And just think about the term 
seditious conspiracy. It is a conspiracy. It is a common plan. And for the jury instructions here, it doesn't have to be like an express agreement. We hereby agree to have an insurrection. It also doesn't have to be like an informal agreement. It doesn't have to just be like, hey, we're all doing this agreement, right? If there's a common course of conduct that all lines up um, that pushes in the direction of an attempt to essentially overthrow the government. Um, that is what forms the basis of a, a seditious conspiracy charge. And so now that you've lined up brick by brick these convictions of these uh, oath keepers and and these proud boys, and they're all pointing the figure the finger at Donald Trump. Just think about how that could be used as evidence in a future prosecution against Donald Trump. And look, I know there are a lot of kind of Merrick Garland, um, I think you'd say Merrick Garland haters or just some people who are very frustrated at the pace. And I certainly Wait, share pause, the question. pause, pause. We're going to do a public service, public service for the Midas Mighty. <laughs> you ready, Ben? Ready. Ben has no idea what I'm about to do right now. <laughs> say, say the word from. From. From, say frustrated. Frustrated. Yay! Okay, continue back to where you were. <laughs> so if you if you go back, um, and there's a lot of people who are upset at uh, Merrick Garland and the pace of this, but Merrick Garland frustrated, started, right, Ben? They they are very, and they they're started at <laughs> they started at the bottom with some of the individual prosecutions that were kind of being done the lower level people work their way up to some of the uh, violent uh, individuals and then work their way up to the seditious conspiracy individuals like the Proud Boys and like the Oath Keepers here. And then when you go to Trump and you go to that next level, you have all of this evidence that you've developed to prove the ultimate conspiracy here, which was Trump's involvement. And think about just the massive amount of evidence um, that you now have. So that's why it's so significant, even beyond the fact that these terrorists are being brought to justice. It is critical evidence that if you didn't have all this evidence, you'd have a weaker case. Absolutely. Ben, Ben, you correct me on lights on. So I, I hereby retain my right to correct you too. <laughs> we correct each other, that's right? Good. <laughs> good. All right. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I when I when I thought about this trial and like you were talking about the defense were the defense attorneys for the Proud Boys were constantly pointing to Donald Trump as the ringleader of this. And I thought back to when he said in that first debate with Joe Biden in 2020, stand back and stand by. Can we just bring ourselves back to that moment of that first debate? Because it was such a visceral I feel like violating experience. I think we can all remember how aggressive and ugly Donald Trump was, not just with that statement in that debate, but it was just, it felt like he was just violating all of us, not just Joe Biden, not just the uh, moderator of the debate. It was just this ugly, forceful um, presentation that he put on that is really, um, you know, indifferent. I worked on the Trump campaign, so I saw how people tried to uh, control his messaging. I saw how he was brought in in the last few months of the, that campaign in 2016. They kept him on teleprompter because they knew that they needed to discipline him and discipline his messaging. But when you see this true man, this man's true colors come out you get what you saw in that first debate in 2020 against Joe Biden. And it was the ugliest of human character. I, I, there have been so many kind of reliving you discussed in the open my, um, or you, you reminded everybody watching that I defeated Trump in court and defeated these NDAs throughout this litigation um, experience. There have been some very, significant moments, especially in the Trump administration, where it was kind of like a trigger. And I was reliving all of the trauma that um, that that camp campaign brought on me, both 
at, during my employment and then in this retaliatory you know, attempt to silence me. And that debate in 2020, that first debate with Joe Biden was absolutely one of them. It was it was um, it, it just really brought into full relief who this man is, that seditious conspiracy statute. Like you said, it talks all about destroying by force the government of the United States by force, the authority thereof, uh, you delay the execution of any law by force. And if you think about the character of Donald Trump, the dictatorial um, inclinations of this man, that is who he is. To to force something on people, we opened up with E. Jean Carroll case, it, all of the threads connect. This is somebody who wants to impose um, his pretense of power on, on people, on a free people, on women, on whoever, by force. Um, and that's what we're handling here in all of these situations. You know, but when confronted with, when confronted with force, when confronted with a requirement that he actually show up and defend himself or do something for all of the bluster, for all of the bravado, where is he? right now where is he this week i know he's on his social media platform i know that he is ranting and raving or he's mocking president biden you know or or, or whatever the latest you know social media post that he's making is but i mean truly what a coward that he is um to flee you know and, and the contrast between him and the courage of someone like e Jean carroll the contrast between Trump's legal team and the legal team of all of these fascists and just the good worksman like lawyers of people like E. Jean Carroll is so on display here. Right. It is it is the difference between, again, just competence, incompetence, love and hate. And I think that is a contrast that we need to point out in many ways. Trump's the way he handles the legal cases, it's a microcosm of his management style of what he was like in office, you know, missing in action, incompetent, hateful, despicable. Um, but he throws temper tantrums. And yeah. so you have to do what special counsel Jack Smith's doing. You have to approach it the way E. Jean Carroll's lawyers are. You have to dot every I and cross every T because someone like Donald Trump is a destroyer. His ilk are destroyers and they want to just create a complete and utter mess. And so you've just got to kind of stick to it. You got to yep. keep the stamina and you got to continue down a path of truth. And by the way, it is why and I know we'll talk a little bit about Clarence Thomas and what's going on there, but it's not just Clarence Thomas. It's all these right wing justices who are yeah. embroiled in these scandals of their own making. Um, but they want to destroy the courts. They want to destroy the legitimacy of bodies where truth actually matters, where facts need to be supported by evidence, where lights on is a actual requirement. And that's why they hate our legal system. But we all just have to stick to it. You know, we can't let them bring us down. We can't let them demoralize us. And we have to just we could get frustrated, frustrated. Um, <laughs> but we have to but we have to remain vigilant. Absolutely. What you're saying about about just exercising the tools that we have to bring out the truth, which is in this country, our justice system, our legal system, the courts, as I have done too. That is why I was victorious. I just, you know, they threw all this, all this noise and, and mud at me. And I just buckled down and never moved from my mark pursuing what was right and in, in invalidating these egregious non-disclosure agreements that are used to silence people. And, and we won because truth does win. And who else is pursuing that? Like you're saying, Jack Smith brilliantly probing every nook and cranny into um, what is going on with, with Mar-a-Lago. Why is surveillance footage missing? We just learned this week that he has issued subpoenas to the Trump organization and to the surveillance, um, I'm sorry, the software company that handles the surveillance for Mar-a-Lago because um, there's there's major questions about where certain uh, gaps in footage have, have gone. And so he is, he is after that. He's also subpoenaed um, Matthew Calamari Jr. and Sr 
Jr., who are security executives at the Trump org. Um, and he's he's not stopping there. He's if if like I said in the open, if there is a connection, a foreign quid pro quo, which I think is a very likely possibility between Trump's retention of this, these classified documents that he did not have any any uh, authority to be keeping and his connections with the Saudis. Um, we have evidence that, that Jack Smith is probing that. He has asked for the Trump org for records pertaining to um, Trump's dealings with that Saudi-backed golf tournament that landed ever so conveniently. I mean, at the America First President's golf courses in, in the United States, the Saudi-backed golf tournament. Think about that. Um, and and Jack Smith is after that. He's also uh, reportedly has an insider witness who provided a picture of the storage room at Mar-a-Lago. The storage room is is really at the center of a lot of Jack Smith's investigation into what happened um, after these assertions were made by Trump's attorneys that any documents would be in the storage room. Of course, that was found out to be false. Documents were found when the when the FBI came and searched Mar-a-Lago in the drawers of Trump's desk um, and in other places. So um, the, it, he's really getting to the center of who's telling the truth here, who's not, um, when and to whom did Trump direct lawyers or others to not give forthcoming information about where these documents were and what was his motive behind keeping these classified documents that belonged to the United States government. Look, sometimes the most obvious explanation is the correct explanation here. Yeah. And with Donald Trump, sometimes it's it's as basic as that, right? When Donald Trump says to the Georgia Secretary of State, find me the votes, he's not speaking in hyperbole. He's actually saying, find me votes that don't exist so you can overturn the results. And that's why in Georgia, for example, you have, as part of the common plan and scheme, people related to Trump, like actually stealing voting data from election centers so they could take it and manipulate it and find him the votes. So going to special counsel Jack Smith, why do you think Donald Trump stole the documents and then obstructed justice? What was he trying to do? You think he just wanted to put them on his window? You think he just wanted them as a memento? You think that was what he wanted to do? No, he uses things transactionally. By the way, he's posted on his social media platform his view that Richard Nixon was able to make 20 or $30 million turning over the documents to the government, not realizing that a lot of the laws that have been passed related to the Presidential Records Act were because Richard Nixon is a crook. <laughs> so Donald Trump always had a view about taking these records and using them transactionally to grift. You know, the same way he grifts off making these ridiculous, stupid NFTs off himself, right? The way he grifts when he writes this book, he didn't write it. It's called Letters to Trump, right? Where most presidents who leave office actually write books about their experience. Donald Trump takes letters he received to him from written to him. <laughs> from genocidal maniacs, and he puts them in a book and brags that Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin wrote him letters. So what do you think he's doing with these documents? There have been prior reports that he's been showing donors and VIPs, like classified maps. Um, so special counsel Jack Smith's looking at that. What do you think he's doing with the Saudis when they host the live golf tournament um, at his properties? What do you think he's doing when they're paying Jared Kushner two billion dollars to manage their money um, when he's not a money manager. What do you think the links and relationships? And by the way, the mere fact that Donald Trump has these documents, just even if he doesn't show them to the Saudis, for example, think about the power that he has in just having negotiations with them, just the mere fact that they know he still has the documents and that in the future, you know, maybe you do say, you don't even have to say it. You know, you host some tournaments. You, you never know when we're going to need each other in the future. It's things like that that they are looking, you know, that special counsel Jack Smith is looking into there. And I think it's obvious that Donald Trump used it uh, transactionally. A lot more to discuss on the special counsel Jack Smith front, but let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk more about it. This episode is sponsored by Lomi. 
What's better than growing fresh vegetables right in your own backyard with nutrients that came right out of your kitchen? Well, it's all possible thanks to Lomi. Now that I have a Lomi, it's changed the way I think about my food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps to dirt in under four hours. Now I love composting. Plus, it's make, made cooking at home even more fun. There's no food rotting in the garbage and smelling up the kitchen. Thanks to Lomi, I have much less trash to take out, and it's a hassle-free, mess-free experience. No leaking trash bags. And the best part is that my waste is being turned into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane gas. I get to help the environment and make my life easier. And all my food scraps, plant clippings, and even unwanted leftovers go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food right in my backyard. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to landfill, I'm helping to do my part for the planet. So whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com lights and use the promo code lights to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com lights and use the promo code lights at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Turn your food waste into dirt with the press of a button with Lomi. Use the code LIGHTS to save $50 at Lomi.com slash LIGHTS. You know, when you were talking before the break, Ben, about, about how Trump is really a, he's basically an asset for these foreign, foreign nations. He doesn't have to be an agent. The difference between agent and asset doesn't have mean they're actually telling him what to do necessarily and he's doing it, but they have this collateral by the way of these transactions that that influence and and uh, you know make him act in the way he does. They form his allegiances. And I was reminded, we're about to talk about the Supreme Court. I was reminded of that house that Donald Trump sold years ago, that property in South Florida for many millions of dollars greater than its than its appraised value to a Russian oligarch. And you know, it, it's just like there's so many of these things that we overlook these facts. But uh, this evidence has been here for so long that he is the furthest thing from an America first candidate, an America first president. He's like I said when I first talked to you a year ago on the Midas Touch podcast, I think he's the most foreign president that we've ever had. Um, but speaking of speaking of allegiances and loyalties, we have this shocking reporting, more shocking reporting. I mean, it's just like, my God, when is this going to end? And when is Clarence Thomas going to resign from the Supreme Court? Because this is not normal. It's not OK. Um, we learned that uh, in addition to all of these new revelations about Harlan Crow paying for a, a grand, is it grand nephew, Ben? Grand nephew? Yeah, of, grand nephew who he adopted as his own son when uh, his grand nephew was about six years old. Right. So he doesn't want to technically call this uh, individual a son, but he was very much treated like a son. And Harlan Crow was paying for him to go to these very prestigious private schools. This was never disclosed. And then right after this, we learn about what I think is just this scandalous um, transfer of funds through Kellyanne Conway's company, the polling company, um, back in 2011, 2012, when one of these um, so-called nonprofits that Leonard Leo, head of the Federalist Society, the man who was responsible for so many of these extreme conservative just, ju justices and judges being put on the federal bench, um, he basically set up this, this funneling of tens of thousands, reportedly up to $100,000 through Kellyanne Conway's polling company from one of these judicial activist groups um, called the Judicial Education Project to Ginny Thomas's organization, Liberty Consulting. And this was right at the time when, Lib when the Judicial Education Project, this conservative activist group, had filed an amicus brief in Shelby County, which is that case that rolled back um, some of those 
just essential protections from the Voting Rights Act um, that we are we are dealing with the effects of right now. That's why we need the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And did did Justice Thomas recuse on that decision with this money being funneled to his wife's consulting company? Of course he didn't. And in a 5-4 decision, Shelby County came down and and rolled back these protections for uh, for ensuring that minority voters were not suppressed in states that had a history of suppressing the minority vote. You know, it's just so much gaslighting um, from these MAGA Republicans because they try to turn around and say, well, you know what, Justice Sotomayor, she wrote a book and she got paid for the book that she wrote. Yeah. She disclosed that. And all the Supreme Court justices have written books and they get paid for it. It's you're getting paid for your labor. I think that we could perhaps debate if they should be writing books and getting paid for it or if they should donate that money to charitable causes. But all Supreme Court justices do that. I mean, the issue here is that these MAGA Republican appointed justices, that they're taking these lavish, lavish gifts. And we're not just talking about thousands. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. In the case of Clarence Thomas, millions of dollars, and then not disclosing it in the first place. And why would he not disclose it? Again, going back to what I said earlier, the obvious explanation is sometimes the answer here, and that is that he doesn't want to disclose it. He loves the gravy train. He wants all of these gifts. And by the way, I think it is a very laudable thing if Clarence Thomas has a grandnephew who is in a difficult situation to bring that individual into your family and to provide the best. I think we all will think that that is a very noble thing to do. But see, here's the thing. Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas, through deals like the one you just talked about, collectively make close to $1 million a year um, as kind of their combined family income, which is the amount of money they actually do disclose. These aren't people who are struggling. They have the means if they want to send their grandnephew to a great private school to do that. Mind you, Justice Thomas is the same person who's likely going to vote against President Biden's student debt relief program. Meanwhile, how is it that Clarence Thomas is paying for his grandnephew's education? I guess it's great. If you have a billion, if you're a Supreme Court justice and you have billionaire friends who want to influence you, you just don't disclose it. You take the money and you pay for the best private schools. You don't even have to pay out of your own pocket. The billionaires will ultimately pay for it. And that's the problem here. It is this rampant corruption. And then it's the gaslighting when the Republicans are like, oh, this is this is my Mitch McConnell impression. Oh, this is just the Democrats going after us for uh, uh, Supreme Court justice wants to take a vacation. No, no, he could take a vacation. Go take a vacation. You make a million dollars a year, pay for your own vacation. Or if you do want to take a vacation and have a billionaire pay for it, disclose that and let the public judge you and let the public hold you accountable for that. It's not, we're not upset that you took a vacation. It's we're upset that the billionaire is the one who is paying for it and you're not disclosing it. When we call justices your honor and they have the title, the honorable so-and-so, it's because they're supposed to act honorable. They're supposed to be beyond reproach. They are supposed to conduct themselves differently. If they want to be Wall Street bankers or private lawyers who make lots of money and go on these trips and and, and with their own money, you gotta do that. I, I'm not upset. You don't see us being upset at, you know, some partner at a big law firm who takes lavish vacations. No, you're a Supreme Court justice. You're supposed to be honorable. Act like it. And if your judgment is so screwed up and this is the type of decisions that you're making personally and this is how this is how corrupt you're in your doing your personal dealings and you're the person now who's taking away a woman's right to control her body you're the person taking away voting rights you're the person who's now screwing with all of our rights while you're there at some camp with the billionaire with the cigar sitting next to Leonard Leo, whose job is the court. 
He's the Federalist Society. Their whole job is to manipulate the court. So, yes, when there's a painting of Clarence Thomas, Leonard Leo, Harlan Crow, that guy Mike Paletta or Mark Paletta, whatever the guy's name is, chilling there with cigars that the billionaire's paying for. Yeah, that is a big problem. And Americans are pissed. That's not a lefty issue. It's not a Democratic issue. That's just freaking corruption. And we call out corruption. And if people are cool with that, screw you. That's not what this supposed to be and yeah you know what's gaslighting this week it's so much gaslighting you know what grosses me out more than anything is they get they get people americans in this country who are struggling in middle america who believe their lies believe for whatever reason like we're going to talk about at the end the, the christian cover for whatever reason have been gaslit and propagandized mesmerized enough into believing these people are on their side they get these struggling americans to take the flack for them to to think oh and i i mean i was i was wrapped up into this nonsense when i went to work for donald trump in 2016 i thought oh he's just he's attacked so much he's just under attack by everyone oh poor billionaire or however much he's really worth who really knows donald trump and that's that's how they try to frame this this gaslighting works so tragically with so many people who are themselves struggling, who would love to put their children in private schools. I mean, for God's sakes, I grew up in a single parent household. My mother struggled so much at times to try to find a good public school for me because she couldn't afford a private school. I mean, my God almighty, how many single parents out there struggling or any parents struggling for a good education for their children would love to have a billionaire benefactor uh, just swoop in and put their, their children into the best schools. And this, like you said, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that this guy has an obligation ethically because he's making decisions that affect the entire country. And these Republicans, through their propaganda, have people who don't have resources, who are struggling themselves, taking the flack for these billionaires and, you know, very privileged people with such comfortable lives and have them going against other Americans who are also struggling instead of realizing that this GOP is the most elitist, corrupt, um, self-serving group of people. Turn against them. Don't turn against your fellow Americans. And, And look at the one party in this country who is actually engaged in policies to help struggling people and to lift them up. That's that's what gets me more than anything is that they have the people who don't who can't even who are struggling themselves taking flack for them taking flack for Clarence Thomas and you know, Harlan I, I saw I, I saw this article that I think was written around the time of Clarence Thomas's confirmation when there were a bunch of stories just about how unqualified and how much of the wrong choice he was. And, and what the investigative reporter had had kind of dug up is that Clarence Thomas was calling his sister and all of these speeches he was giving in the late 80s to kind of build his quote unquote conservative bona fides that he was saying that she was calling his own sister a welfare queen and saying that she and her family would just wait for their government checks and how despicable his, about his sister and his and his nephew and you know and 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 it was then later determined through the investigative reporters that like his sister was working two jobs was taking care of like was taking care of a of a sick family member that the kids were working that she's did everything she could to try to um, live the American dream but as many Americans do trying to do that was just struggling um, you know because you know she had to live paycheck to paycheck she wasn't getting trips from Harlan Crow she wasn't getting billionaires to lavish her with gifts but she was a hardworking person but when I read that story recently, it just kind of stuck out to me that he would call his own sister a welfare queen in speeches to try to mock her when one that's so inappropriate and disgusting to begin with. But number two, just kind of a, a hardworking person working many jobs like most Americans are. And I, I just think that that kind of talk, though, you know, has just been so ingratiated into 
this Republican version of the, you know, they, they, they like to say, oh, socialists and Marxists and all of these things. It's like if you look at what these Republican policies are, it's socialism for billionaires. That, that, that's basically what it is at the end of the day. Yeah, it really is. And and I tease this in the open and I'm going to share as as you all know, I'm litigating. I have these two cases I'm litigating. I'm litigating the NDA cases, which I won individually, and we're, we're working to certify it on a class-wide basis so hundreds of former staffers who are silenced can be freed. And then I'm litigating separately the underlying case that brought this all about, which is my human rights case against the Trump campaign for just an egregious, terrifying experience and as, as an employee that I had in 2016. And in the process of this, we talked about you know using the legal system and, and how when you just use it, it works. And I have elicited so much truth and um, really damning uh, information about the conduct of the Trump campaign from my litigation starting in 2017. This has taken a long time, especially because of all of the delay and retaliatory tactics of the Trump campaign. But I have tracked down some very high level witnesses that I was involved with. I was involved with all of these people in 2016. If you've watched this before, you follow me on Twitter you know, about my, um, how I, how I, I tracked down uh, Steve Bannon and compelled him to a deposition, which is actually in process as we speak. Um, and another high level witness that we deposed um, a few months back was Kellyanne Conway. And I, you know, you, you <laughs> so many of these people have certain personas in public and different personas in private. One thing that I learned from my, my first just gut reaction to her when I met Kellyanne Conway in 2016 was that she she comes on television. She's always really perky and, you know, has her talking points and, you know, this gaslighting that she does on TV. But when I met her in person and the reason I was introduced to her was because I was asked to run her Twitter feed in 2016. I actually ran Kellyanne Conway's Twitter feed um, it, it was that she was she was her demeanor in person one-on-one -on -one, was so calculating. So it just seemed like she was a totally, totally different person. This is no surprise than the person that you see on television. And so when we deposed her, or when we were leading up to this deposition, there's another amazing story about how we got Kellyanne Conway served because process servers weren't working to get served. And, and I took it into my own hands with my family to get to get her served on outside of her multi, you know, her mansion and embassy row in Washington, DC. We actually caught her running out of her house into a Fox News satellite van. That's how we got Kellyanne Conway served. Um, but when she came for that deposition, I expected, and this was probably a fool's, you know, foolish and naive of me, I expected her to be a little more, um, courteous. She is a she is a lawyer herself. I expected her to maybe not be that character that we see on television and just be a um, civil witness answering questions that my lawyer asked her. I'm going to tell you, Ben, and our luminaries, Kellyanne Conway was the rudest, most arrogant, um, entitled, disrespectful witness that we have deposed over this entire course of litigation. Um, that includes made, Steve Bannon. That includes Steve Bannon, and we will <laughs> stay tuned because you will. We, we will. We will bring more to you about Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway. Her demeanor just blew me away. I talk about triggering mo moments. I wa walked away from that deposition with Kellyanne Conway triggered all over again because of just the abusive manner that she treated that process with. Um, and, you know, we talk, we're talking about all of this money that she was, that she was funneling, that she's made over the years. She made a reported, her, her firm, the polling company rate made a reported $2 million in 2016 from their work for previously Ted Cruz and other PACs. And then the Trump campaign, $2 million. Okay. She <laughs> took such an aversion throughout this deposition to how much money I was making. 
to how much she, she referred to me as that woman. That woman was making X amount of money, which happens to be a fraction of what she was making, also happens to be half of the amount of money that the, the, in, the number one individual who was terrorizing and antagonizing me, a man, my former boss, was making. I made half of what he was making by the end of the campaign. She had no comments or criticisms about how much he was making. But um, she, she, she came, comes off to the people that still follow her and believe her. And there are lots of them. There are lots of people that look to someone like Kellyanne Conway on the conservative, quote unquote conservative, we know they're not really conservative, on the MAGA side and say, oh, look at Kellyanne Conway. She's proof that, you know, there is a champion for women over there. There is a champion for women um, who led the 2016 Trump campaign. <laughs> look at what she accomplished. And she wrote this book where she talked about I didn't buy it, don't worry. I went into a bookstore and did my research for my deposition, but she wrote this book um, where she talked about giving Trump campaign staffers what they needed to function and succeed in a work environment where they could perform. I just wanna share with you, I went through some serious hell, frightening experiences where I was being accused of federal crimes and, and someone was threatening to steal my personal laptop when I was all the way across the country from New York and a this former staffer was threatening to take possession of my personal laptop. I was absolutely terrified. And I sent an email to Kellyanne Conway, who, by the way, had already been clued into to what was going on. She knew. She knew. And if we can pull up this deposition transcript, this is a page out of the deposi deposition transcript where my attorney is reminding her that I sent this letter this email that said, urgent, I need help. And there's this line of questioning where he, he, my attorney says, this is a woman writing an email to you specifically. Can, and I, says, can I be the lawyer and can you be Kellyanne Conway? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yes, you ready? I'll Go. be your lawyer. But this is a woman writing an email to you specifically as well as Mr. DeWitt. And it says at the subject line, urgent, I need help, right? Uh-huh, right. Right. And you're saying you don't recall getting an email that says urgent. I need help in all caps at the top. I didn't say that, sir. Don't put words in my mouth, especially when you are mischaracterizing facts by the way of this deposition and not under oath, although these are sworn documents. So we can get to that some other time. But I told you if I'm copied on it, it's possible that I received it and, and saw it. I don't recall. But you don't remember specifically sitting here. Excuse me. I don't recall specifically from six years ago any more than you recall what you had for dinner on October 3rd, 2016. So the answer is no. Then what do you say there? <laughs> then then I say, excuse me, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, can we take a break? Because <laughs> I probably needed to talk to my attorney. <laughs> but that I mean, first of all, you just see where my attorney is basically calling saying, you don't you didn't remember it. She's saying he's lying. And then we get to the end and she says, yeah, I didn't remember it. So that's how much this woman who claimed to be a champion of women and taking care of all the staffers, make sure what they had what they need in 2016, doesn't even remember getting a email from a staffer saying urgent. I need help. Urgent. I need help. You think you might re remember an email like that. And by the way, it was one of about two or three emails of that nature that was sent to her that weekend. Um, her, her only behavior in 2016 was to to make false assurances to keep me quiet. One very notable one on Access Hollywood weekend when she brought me into her office, you know, just sugarcoated me and and said what she needed to do in her mind to just make sure that nothing came out of my mouth outside the walls of Trump Tower. And I there's so much context, so much color and uh, so many threads of this story that um, that have to be told to really understand it. And that's why I'm finally writing writing this all now and using all of all of the information that I've garnered from my lawsuits um, to put this down in writing and be able to share it. It's it's really, it, there are so many things on the Trump campaign that people, many people to this day don't know about. And it's unbelievable to think that we are, we have this same entity, the Trump campaign, treasonous Donald Trump running for president again, about to be the Republican nominee. It is unbelievable.
think about this you know you have the show lights on and her motto is alternative facts and you know as a trumper she just goes on whatever network wherever she goes and just lies like she she's almost i'm trying to think of the best way to, to say it like she's almost an avatar and not a real person like it's almost she's playing a video game of a person who just kind of lies because there is no soul there is no humanity and just waking up every day from the moment from the moment your alarm rings to just lie and like enjoy it like when you watch her give the interviews too there does seem to be a perverse enjoyment she has in the lying and in the cruelty to her lies like it's fun like it's fun for her it's just it's just par for the course it's it's part of the game that you just play and and and, and it isn't and the entire MAGA Republican Party is infested by that. And frankly, it doesn't shock me that she performed the worst in a deposition context because it's something that she can't control. So in that specific setting, I think that's why you saw her react the way she did. But if you think about MAGA Republicans in general, they're, they're all kind of variations of that. It's like taking a delight in the cruelty and in the lying and in the gaslighting. It's like, it's, it's almost fun for them, but there are real things at stake. Like the, we're talking about people's lives and so un what's so unfortunate is that when you have the large media networks that buy into the game, oh, this is what they say. Now, what do the Democrats say? Oh, these are all very unique positions. No, because you're actually killing people. Like the, th these policies have an impact where it's life or death for most Americans, you know, who are not as Clarence Thomas as welfare queens in his despicable way, you know, and, and using that terminology. We're just talking about hard working people who are just trying to get by while people like Kellyanne Conway and people like Clarence Thomas and, and all the, the Matt Gateses and the Marjorie Taylor Greens are just trying to take advantage of us. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're speaking of taking advantage. I tease this and and by the way, I have I have other another excerpt that I would like you to be able to see about a comment, a really heinous comment that Don, uh, Kellyanne Conway made. I'm going to retweet it on my Twitter feed. So if you don't follow me already, follow me on Twitter. Um, I will share that again. So so we can uh, you can see that clip from another clip from the Kellyanne Conway deposition. But before we wrap, I tease this in the open. Speaking of hypocrisy, so many of uh these um, right-wingers get away with their hypocrisy because the followers of them are Christians, are people of faith, who put their trust and faith in these leaders because they believe them to be Christian. Um, I just want to take us out with a clip from a wonderful um, representative in the state Senate in Texas who is fighting this egregious unconstitutional bill to post Ten Commandments, requiring the Ten Commandments to be posted in schools. It's it's just a complete violation of the Constitution, separation of church and state. Um, and he's doing him as a Christian, he is doing an excellent job of pointing out this hypocrisy. So let's listen for a minute to Texas Representative James Tellerico of Austin. This bill to me is not only unconstitutional, it's not only un-American, I think it is also deeply unchristian. And I say that because I believe this bill is idolatrous, I believe it is exclusionary, and I believe it is arrogant. And those three things in my reading of the gospel are diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus. A religion that has to force people to put up a poster to prove its legitimacy is a dead religion. And it's not one that I wanna be a part of, it's not one that I think I am a part of. You know that in scripture it says faith without works is what? Dead. Is dead. My concern is instead of bringing a bill that will feed the hungry, clothe the naked, 
heal the sick. We're instead mandating that people put up a poster. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, not force your beliefs on other people, right? By the way, we're going to do an interview with um, Representative Tellerico next week. I can't wait to um, share that with you, so be on the lookout. We're going to bring him on and go into a much more in-depth discussion of, of what he's fighting as a Christian Democrat in Texas. Yeah, he is a superstar. I'm excited to see your interview with him, and we will post that interview in full uh, on our YouTube channel. So I'm very excited for that. Everybody, go check out thejessicadenson.com slash donate. You see, Jessica is uh, battling the forces <laughs> in Trump world in her litigation. So if you want to help out, um, check out thejessicadenson.com slash donate. For those who are watching this on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to Lights On wherever you listen to audio podcasts as well. For those that just listen to Lights On on the audio podcast, make sure you check out our YouTube channel. Just search Midas Touch and subscribe. Everybody make sure that you're subscribed to the Midas Touch YouTube channel. Um, you can check us out as well at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. You can check out our gear at store.midastouch.com. Um, and uh, that's a wrap. Jessica, great spending this Friday with you. Um, look forward to uh, next uh, Friday's episode, but definitely looking forward to that interview you're going to do with that rising star uh, representative from uh, Texas. We'll post that as soon as you finish that interview. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching this episode of Lights On with Jessica Denson. Jessica, I'll let you take it out. We love our luminaries so much. See you next time. <laughs> Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Mighty.